This is the Breachside Broadcast, the best box casting either side of the breach. This is the announcer welcoming you to another edition of Tales of Malifaux. Our current storyline is so very close to being complete. Its conclusion is a closely guarded guild secret and is being kept secret in the same way as all state information, inside a series of increasingly harder to crack boxes. Or so we are told. Hello? How's this worked? Testing. Testing. One, two. One, two. Hmm. How about if I were to, uh, to do this? Pull that wire there. Ah, much better. This is Miners and Steamfitters Union Department's designation outhouse. We have been attempting to break into this etherbox frequency for several months now, but we have finally succeeded. The team designated outhouse are responsible for causing disruptions in guild-sanctioned propaganda, parades, rag sheets, etherbox broadcasts, the lot. It is our job to bring to light the lies being forced at the public and to flush all of that away with the truth. The news that you have been hearing on this programme, it's not even half the story, not even close. Besides, it's ignoring what's really going on out there. Men dying in soulstone mines for their fat cat bosses. Families failing to get a few pennies together for an evening meal. This will stop. Everyone will take notice of... So, make sure you're all around for that. Let's get our journey off to a start today with a story I like to call Driving Vengeance. Driving Vengeance. A single red star shone above Malifaux its brightness penetrating even the frequently cloud-covered sky. Though the other stars arced across the sky nightly, and with the changing of the seasons, that red star remained immobile, always hanging over the horizon in the same place. If one travelled through the swamp, with the buzz of the breach behind him and that red star before him, he would, in time, arrive at the ruins of Kythera, a temple dedicated to death. There he would find the already stagnant water of the bayou further fouled by viscous black oil that continuously bubbles up from the centre of the great edifice at its centre. It is proximity to this temple that allows for the science of necrotic reanimation and other techniques governing the manipulation of life and death, Nicodem explained, though Karai and Koku barely paid attention to his words. She stared at the red star through the aperture of the telescope as he had directed, though she feigned interest in that as well. Truly, she retained very little concern for anything. He continued, saying, It is also why these techniques are of significantly reduced utility earthside. Malifaux has a certain spirituality of its magic. Kythera and other such reservoirs of power allow a control over death. A corpse here has a lingering spiritual connection. He removed his top hat and ran those knobbly fingers through wispy thin hair matted to his pale scalp. I can give life to Francis, she asked, suddenly interested. 
No, child, not that. We may urge a corpse to walk and function, making it resemble the life you and I take for granted. But very rarely do we see anything like the life a corpse might have had before. Their personality exists beyond, and he swept his narrow fingers toward the ceiling. Over time, that connection will crumble, and even a powerful resurrectionist may not stir its forgotten will to stand and walk. Then why would I want this if not to bring Francis back to me? Nicodem smiled, though his lips curled down at the corners, making him look even more cruel and sinister. Your quest ended with the death of Captain Gideon, he asked, knowing the answer. Karai did not answer. No, he offered. You're not done, are you? No, there are more. The governor, she said. Yes. Why have I not assaulted him? I... I mean the spirit. Why has it not destroyed him as it has the others? The governor is unassailable, it seems. He has wards and guards. He has many enemies. We will find a way, you and I, Nicodem said with certainty. But I cannot animate corpses like you suggested. As I said, our control manifests differently in each of us. Though we have only heard of the animation of the once dead, their spirits are lost to us, severed irrevocably. That is, it is as I supposed, until I met you. Me? she asked. Why me? Yes. Why you? Why me, for that matter? Why anything? We are, each of us, trapped in the moment of time. Fate has a way of conspiring against us. You are different. As you say, you cannot give animation to the dead. You call forth the dead. Their spirits come at your call. You have a talent for such things. And it is my desire to take you as an apprentice, so that I might help you master your power and fulfill the revenge you seek. Karai gazed through the aperture of the giant telescope within Nicodem's observatory in the heart of the forbidden quarantine zone. The light of that red star held her transfixed. It reminded her of the sanguine gleam in the eyes of her own manifested Akirio spirit. In that moment, standing over the butchered body of Gideon, her lover's murderer, the hidden vaults of her mind had been opened. She allowed herself to see the depth and power of her darkest desires and realized her own capability for violence. As a child, she remembered attending the Kabuki theater and seeing a play about a proud warrior laid low by terrible sickness. He blamed the illness on a visiting priest, and as the warrior sank further and further into delirium, his soul was consumed with grief that he should die such a pitiful death, withering away in bed rather than on the field of battle. His soul became fractured by this grief, and that most jealous and hateful part of him left to seek vengeance for this crime. The warrior's grudge became a curse, a spirit that plagued the priest incessantly. It eventually caused the holy man to drown himself to escape the torture. The tale was intended to warn against jealous and hateful thoughts as the deaths of both men were mourned by the village. Both the warrior and the priest had brought many blessings to the village, and both were greatly honoured in a shrine dedicated to their memory and the virtue of morality. For Karai, there was no redeeming virtue in those responsible for Francis' murder. Her desire for revenge was justified. 
it was a matter of honour to see his death avenged. The cold certainty of this truth had steeled her heart. The time for mourning had passed. Like the old story she'd enjoyed seeing performed as a girl. She would stay here and adopt Nicodem as her mentor, and learn the esoteric techniques that would prepare her for an inevitable confrontation with the Governor-General, empowering her to exact justice. It was as she gazed upon the red star of Kythera that she contemplated these truths. Vengeance? That is my only motivation? All for me to live for? She was apathetic at best. Nicodem was perplexed and grew irritated with her pathetic melancholy. He had always imagined that the training of a new practitioner in the art of a resurrectionist would require elaborate steps of stripping a person of her humanity, breaking her down into something submissive and non-empathetic. Her eye was the opposite of those expectations. She was so filled with grief that her pitiful demeanour gave her no hope at all. Perhaps not, he said. Though you have much to learn on the path to mastery, you have the power to summon spirits, do you not? She looked at him quizzically, thinking, You think I can summon Francis? His spirit? Her eyes widened, and she beamed with newfound hope. Nicodem had found the angle by which he might manipulate the girl, but he would proceed cautiously, keeping her between hope and desperation, lest he lose her too quickly and his plans unravel. Perhaps, girl, have hope. But know that my guidance will provide only direction. Spirituality is not a common ability among my order. She nodded, though her darting eyes and only partially waning smile revealed her newfound hope. And the work will be arduous for us both, he continued, time-consuming and daunting. My work will suffer as well. My research. I will work hard, she said, interrupting him. I will do it. He continued, ignoring her. The longer it takes for you to master the summoning, the more difficult it will be to locate your one disjoint soul in the maelstrom. Then we must begin, she said. I will not be a burden upon you. I would follow your teaching. I can help you with your research. I can be helpful. She paused for a moment, looking down and away. In many ways. Her last words gave a rehearsed hint of seduction but her eyes were emotionless and dead. Nicodem did not show much emotion, but his eyes grew vaguely thoughtful and his gaze lingered on her for a moment. His eyes circled her round face and roved across her lithe body. She recognized the lewd stare despite the gentlemanly persona he presented. She was disheartened. Still, Francis was disembodied, and their reunion would be of the spirit. Her flesh mattered little now, so long as they might rejoin in the spirit as they were always truly united. Nicodem nodded and said, We'll speak of what you can offer me in the future. Let us begin. He gestured for Karai to follow him, and he led her from his observatory into the chambers below. There was a quick tour through his fantastic library, a giant vault containing a seamlessly uncountable volume of books. The library's scale awed her and she was certain she would spend much time exploring its many stacks. Various sculptures depicting a variety of unbelievable monsters were placed throughout the vast chamber. Nicodem explained that these creatures were identified by the people of old Malifaux in constellations in the night sky. Still lower into the tower they travelled, and Nicodem opened a large barred door into a vast chamber. 
This place was filled with a complex assortment of arcane machinery, devices which Karai could not divine the purpose of. Still stranger, the chamber was occupied by a host of desiccated men shambling about, mindlessly fulfilling mundane chores of moving crates or large burlap bags filled with machinery or lifeless bodies. Following Nicodem into an adjoining lab, she had to move through dried corpses hanging vertically upon hooks as if cattle at a butcher. Still others were set upon tables in various stages of dissection. Karai found that she was not frightened of them, only curious. Nicodem moved to a steel slab where a corpse had been laid out. Your study will involve, beyond the development of your own unique power, the proper preparation of a body and the production of this serum, which must be uniquely tailored to the subject. With research, I will perfect the agents administered to these corpses, increasing their durability and flexibility. Resurrecting those with talents in a particular arena has proven fruitless, as I've explained. The master of swordsmanship in life, for example, has forgotten all but simple gestures of weapon recognition in animated rebirth. Mental faculties suffer too greatly by the trauma of death and rebirth for the race to be able to recall whatever feats they were capable of in life. We've learned various alchemical processes, however, by which we have created individuals inspired to cause harm to others and appear to enjoy inflicting despicable pain upon our enemies. We may yet unlock darker secrets. Our order seeks mastery of the dead to create ever stronger, smarter weapons. Your goal and mine are the same, Karai. The dethroning of the Governor-General and justice for the crimes he has committed. For this we will need an army to combat him and his agents. If you, Karai, can infuse a corpse with a willful spirit of its own, we may together unlock that weapon. When the moment is right... We will lead this army to raise the guild district and strip them of the control they wield. And kill the governor, she said with more venom than he would have expected. He smiled that same downturned smile that conveyed his malice well. Yes, and kill the governor. Nicodem moved beside Karai and pushed the needle of his syringe into the chest of the corpse. He injected a highly reflective silver fluid into the body. Examining the body as Nicodem administered the fluid, she said, This man, he is Nipponese. And she turned her eyes up to look at Nicodem. Of the three kingdoms. Nicodem nodded. It is said that there is no other nation in which its warriors fear death less than Nippon. Though this quality is perhaps irrelevant in their reanimation, I prefer the use of Nipponese corpses. At the least, they are often buried with their daisho and retain a familiarity with it. Nicodem's eyes turned to the corpse again and noted the progress of the serum. In a moment, this body will reanimate. The solution I've developed returns superior function to the body's nervous system. The voice spoken while it waits will imprint itself upon the crude intellect of the corpse and take the place of the brain's decision-making processes, which are not able to be salvaged. The voice will become its master? Correct. Now you will greet this corpse as it wakes. He will serve you. As he stirs, focus your attention upon him. Do not think of it. Think as though you are just falling into a gentle slumber. Call a spirit to this corpse. Think of a warrior that would fight for you, obey you. Think of that warrior and this warrior as one. Karai returned her focus to the body. 
and indeed she noticed small spasms of minute movement in the corpse's limbs. In a sudden flicker its eyes flashed open, and Karai saw that the silver fluid had rehydrated the corpse's eyes, giving it a strange reflective gaze. She did not shrink from that gaze. She did not fear the unnatural process that took place before her. With a confident voice she greeted the corpse just as she was instructed, commanding, Arise, good soldier. Your battles have not yet ended. As it rose, picking up the two katana near it, Nicodem whispered, Very good. Very good. But she had nothing to do with the reanimation of the corpse. She hadn't even been able to reach into that vague place where she had touched the wailing spirits. The memory of such an event was fleeting and vague, like a dream many days forgotten. But then, as she thought of her own Ikirio spirit pulling from her to enact the vengeance she desperately wanted for herself, she saw herself, as if from above, looking down. She lifted her hands, and there, below her, they lifted. Now the Ikirio was free, but not fully manifest. Nicodem was aware of nothing as his nose wrinkled and he scowled at a sudden rancid smell that permeated the room. She commanded the Ikirio to summon a spirit but it was more a plea than an order. It moved invisibly through a barrier, invisible even to her, into a void empty of anything. It was a blank whiteness, tinged lilac, silent and still. Through the vision of the Akirio, she could not see that her small body, standing before Nicodem, still had her hands uplifted. Her head bent back as a ghostly wind billowed forth from the tear in the fabric between this world and the ether where the Akirio had gone. Her eyes rolled into her skull, and the sultry air blew upon Nicodem, tiny drops of condensation forming on his spectacles. The Akirio returned, and with it a strange beastly shape formed beside her. It was dark and wispy, created of a smoky shadow and vaguely feminine, with long hair of billowing darkness falling across her face and before her gaunt body. The Akirio had done as she asked and she suddenly knew that she was the key to anchoring this new spirit to this world. Though she could see it, Nicodem could not. Looking upon his risen zombie as if it now housed a spiritual warrior she had summoned and embedded within it, but she had not connected the Shikomi spirit to this fragile form. She did not care. She knew that for the first time she had drawn an angry spirit back from beyond this world. Just as Nicodem could feel the presence of a corpse awaiting his will to walk again, Karai could follow the path this spiritual creature took to find her. In her awakening mind she saw it flow from a powerful void filled with spiritual magic and beasts like it. They awaited a release to enact vengeance upon those they harbored great resentment and jealousy. The living. It had found the Gorgon, and through it, this world. Like a beacon calling it forth, the Shikomi found her through the serpentine ring now hanging by a thin copper chain around her neck. Hidden beneath her black kimono, it pulsed and throbbed in the presence of this terrible spirit, hovering silently nearby, waiting for her to command it. She held it there, between worlds, not giving it tangibility, waiting. The room returned to normal, and Nicodem smiled at his zombie warrior, and his young apprentice.
Now for a public service announcement. Guild officials would like to make everybody aware of a potential threat to public safety. Reports have been coming in of a dangerous man leading a troop of children and sewer vermin through the streets. He has been described as tall, lanky and middle-aged. He has short brown hair, a peculiar purple staff and ominous dark pits where his eyes should be. Accompanying him is a group of missing children, making officials believe that the man could be linked to the escalation and kidnappings that have taken place in parts of Malifaux. Due to this, you have been advised to keep all of your children indoors, keep your windows shut and your exits firmly locked. Do not leave your homes unless you absolutely need to. Should you hear the sounds of pipes, muffle the sound as quickly as possible. A bounty is being offered for this man who is confirmed as being incredibly dangerous. Do not, I repeat, do not approach him individually and even in groups, leave this work to the professionals. Rewards are also being offered for the return of the missing children in his entourage. Keeping you entertained as you huddle up safe and to take your mind off that inevitable noise of pipes, this is Dark Discovery. When the garrison at the Gallo Street checkpoint was attacked by the strange man and the gang that followed him, attacking the guardsmen with a strange and detached apathy, one guardsman broke ranks and retreated, defying orders to hold his ground and fight. Matthew Longfellow, a veteran guard, aspired to join the higher ranks of the death marshals one day soon. He was no coward, though the fear he felt at the vacant obedience of the young teens fighting and dying for that strange man-creature sent shivers through him. It was the leader of the gang that chilled him most, and he knew that images of this night would always haunt him. He felt no discernible fear in fighting them. Officer Longfellow himself fired multiple peacebringer rounds into the chest of that creature, standing resolute against the guild officers, unconcerned. Each strike of a bullet was met with a similar lack of interest, resulting only in a brief groan from within him. Hoffman moved meticulously through the slum district on his quest from the Governor-General, questioning residents that might travel through the shadowed evening streets for possible sightings of a man that might match the brief description he'd amassed of the new murderer. It was no more than an element of fate, an accident at best, that his hunter construct carried him around the corner of a crumbling building. The unique sound of multiple peacebringer rounds in the distance carried to him through the chill evening air and above the heavy footfalls of the hunter upon the worn stones of the city street. With a thought, his hunter rose higher so that he might see above a fallen wall nearby. As his vantage cleared the debris, he could see down the gently sloping street to the checkpoint into the quarantine zone. At this distance, he could not discern the nature of the combatants. Yet the flashes of yellow flame accompanying the crack of each gun and the great mob moving against those guns allowed no question that the checkpoint garrison was being overrun. He sighed and gnashed his teeth. Though recently promoted to a guild officer in charge of a whole new division, he had no practical combat training. He was a mechanic, and the only thought he had regarding combat was perhaps that of a combat engineer, perhaps a strategist at best. He patted the armor plating on the thick forearm before him, and he commanded it to stoke its boiler and build some steam. 
Okay, girl, let's see what you can do. As if having a conversation with the machine, he waited a moment, then nodded. Yes. I wish we'd brought along a guardian or two also, even a peacekeeper. At least we have the new watcher we've worked up. And he nodded to the vaguely bat-like construct. He gave a silent command to the watcher, and it came alive. The hundreds of tiny gears spinning madly within its tiny frame. A brief whistle of steam expelled as it launched into the air. He made a note to move that exhaust port away from its backside, as it did resemble a living bat too much, and the comical expulsion of steam was not exactly in line with the formidable image the guild intended to convey. The original ornithopter design of his former colleague and friend, Victor Ramos, had been redesigned and refined, but odd elements remained, needing attention. He made a note of it. He shook aside the intuitive redesign thoughts as he looked upon every machine and focused on the battle to be waged, his first battle. He swallowed hard and commanded the hunter into a full run, the pistons and gears moving in fluid precision. Another design flaw, he thought. The hunter was designed as a forward strike construct, not as a transportation unit. As such, he based its design on more feline quadrupeds. Modifying it on the fly to move upright in order to haul him around left it clumsy and more vulnerable. Like me, he thought. Quite a team. The construct had some shortcomings when pushed for combat, and he felt different pistons loosening as the construct achieved its full two-legged gait, and screws flew loose as one strap across his upper thigh broke free from its attachment to the hunter. His hand, resting upon that forearm before him, felt the shaky connection of the outer plates of the articulated machinery beneath. Still, he urged it on, hoping the machine and he might make it to the conflict in one piece. He couldn't help himself and pulled an adjustable wrench from an inner pocket on his vest and began repairing it even as it bore him towards the battle. Damn it, he said. I didn't even remember to bring that bloody peacebringer they assigned me. He rolled his eyes, chastising himself as a true amateur. As the hunter ran, Hoffman busied himself with repairs while dangling from the machine's chest and hardly noticed Deputy Longfellow rounding the corner before him, his own weapon at the ready even as he ran. Longfellow ground to a halt driving the heel of his boot into a cobblestone joint and dropping to one knee, shouting, Halt! as he leveled the peacebringer upon Hoffman, eyes wide in fear and confusion. Hoffman looked up and realized quickly that most guards wouldn't have seen him yet, and certainly not out on patrol. Stopping the hunter in full movement was no easy task, however, and the guardsman clearly demonstrated his intent to fire upon him first and ask questions second as Hoffman descended upon him. The hunter shielded him as it could with its many arms, and he slowed it as best he could, bellowing, Stand down, guardsman. I am Officer Hoffman. Longfellow, ready for the fight of his life, nearly pulled the trigger, but realized at the last moment that neither the thin man dangling and bouncing at the center of the lumbering machine, nor the machine itself, seemed intent upon combat. He rose to his feet, lowering the pistol as Hoffman brought the hunter to a stop. The guard's breathing came laboriously while the burners within the construct the release of steam through automatic valves, and the release of hydraulic pressure on the various pistons came to a rest. Hoffman, far more comfortable with machines than people, still understood the emotional conflict upon the guard's face. Easy, deputy, he said calmly. Longfellow looked up at him nervously, still questioning the validity of his identity. Though Hoffman believed his reliance upon the construct for any mobility made him appear as little threat to anyone. Catch your breath. The sound of gunfire from several blocks distant waned. What happened down there, deputy? Matthew Longfellow looked up at him, 
still struggling to reclaim his breath. You'll never believe me, he said. Chap, Hoffman said. The formal English accent more severe and commanding. You'll need to have out with it, I insist. The guard nodded. We were overrun at the garrison. He paused, looking for the right words. Your enemy, soldier? Sir? With whom did you wage battle? He asked. Ill-advised arcanist conjurer? Resurrectionist mongrel digging up bones? The accent and odd descriptive style of speech confused poor Officer Longfellow even more. Neither. I don't know. Resurrectionist, if anything, sir, only... Well, they weren't exactly dead. Not physically. He became urgent once more. We must gather reinforcements. The guild offices, sir, are... Hoffman cut him short. Are too far away. That is, if there are any survivors in need of our aid. The guardsmen very clearly did not like the idea of returning even so much as a look back toward the garrison and maintained a steady look toward the heart of the city that housed the guild militia. Hoffman drove the hunter toward the barracks, expecting Longfellow to continue toward the guild offices. He was relieved to see the guard reluctantly fall in beside him, his pistol gripped in slightly shaking hands. Together they strode back toward the assault. The gunfire ahead of them abruptly ceased, but they continued more slowly as Longfellow reported what had happened. Hoffman inspected the carnage around the quarantine zone checkpoint in confusion. In just a matter of several short weeks, he had gone from crippled machinist to deputized expert overseeing the new flesh construct grafting charter. Determining illegalities surrounding the merger of biological and mechanical seemed quite daunting enough. Analyzing a battle scene, however, was several steps beyond his pay grade. The hunter took several crashing steps toward another dead body, the thunderous footfalls of the large construct jarring him at every step. Pistons in his hunter's midsection released excess pressure in a low whistle, and gears in its chest clicked together as it recalibrated its internal balance. Hoffman no longer noticed these constant mechanical sounds. As the darkness embraced them, he appreciated the hunter's boiler and commanded it to stoke up. The watcher, circling the area, dutifully following Hoffman's unspoken orders, suddenly froze on a low stone wall and sounded its alarm. The warbling klaxon droned until Hoffman silenced it with a thought. Deputy, he said to Longfellow, come with me. The watcher faced the bare pavement, orange and black in the gaslight too far away for Hoffman's liking. He could see nothing to set off the construct's alarm, though he knew better than to question it. Back inside the slum, near the spot where Hoffman and Longfellow had come, they found what might have been the remains of two guardsmen. Unlike the battered and torn flesh of those murdered at the barracks, Hoffman could only stare at the empty uniform soaked in a black sludge, wet and glistening in the faint light. He had the hunter bend to inspect the sludge closer, and as it bent his eye caught the faintest movement between the flattened cobblestones near him. His eyes slowly focused and he ordered the hunter to step back. Don't touch it, he ordered Longfellow. You don't have to worry about that, sir, I swear. What is it? he asked, stepping back. Maggots. On the ground. They're coming right at us. He bent as best he could with the body broken from the midsection down and strapped to an 800-pound construct. He pulled an acetylene torch from his kit and a dark soulstone from his front pocket. Though he had forgotten his peacebringer, he was a man who thrived on improvisation. He looked quickly upon the bodies all around them. More than thirty. Bodies of guardsmen lay among scuttlers and other settlers, 
whose faces were frozen in death with blank disregard. The infection was here, and it was potent beyond nature, Hoffman knew. Guardsmen, he said sternly, I have no time to notarize an official request, so you must be emphatic. Return to the guild offices. Demand to speak to Lady Justice immediately. My watcher construct will accompany you to validate my presence here. Inform her at once of my whereabouts and the condition of our adventure. Mind you now, be emphatic. The guard saluted. Believe me, sir, emphatic will not be a problem. Hesitating no further, he hastily ran to carry out his orders. Hoffman set the soul stone into a makeshift brass cage attached to the hose of the torch. He would need its power. He lit the torch and began with the maggots charging him. They burned and popped in the great belch of heat of his soul stone torch. He burned the black liquid, once guardsman, before turning the torch on the recently killed around the barracks. May you rest, he prayed quietly, engulfing the bodies in white soulstone flame. For good measure, he burned the checkpoint building too, raising the whole area, purging it of the pestilence. must have gone past the tales of Balafo Studios, as we all seem to be fine and in control of as many of our mental faculties as we are permitted to control. The control of the rest have all been handed over to Special Division, you see. That's just what you sign up for when you work in this business, really. Furthermore, the extra protective lining on the studio window seems to have stopped the noise of pipes from coming through. I guess building the windows out of bricks was a great idea after all. Operational Department's outhouse here again. We have attempted to break the signal of the program again since our last incursion, but the Ethervox waves are different to any we have seen before. This isn't like piggybacking onto a security details communications. The literal audio matter seems to be fighting back. Every time we get an inch, it forces us out and establishes its dominance once more. Saddening, but great work has been accomplished here today. Operational Department Outhouse have proven to our leaders, the Guild and the people that we can disturb the toughest Ethervox signal in the city. This is just the beginning. Once we usurp those in control, just imagine what we'll be able to accomplish. That's right, comrades. We are inviting you to join us on this trek. Get some wires, get some technical knowledge and cause some chaos. I would give you my name, but that is certainly very dangerous. It is better that we operate alone. If the Guild were to find out about me, and they will after this, well, you know what they say. Bad things happen.